the same Christ that we sing to, the same Christ that we have victory in, is the firstborn of the dead, the head of his church, and addresses us through his word. Titus chapter 3 this morning, our risen Christ says this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, Hating, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, when he, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of our Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Use it to sanctify us this morning. In Christ we pray. Amen. What does a young church in a very pagan culture need? What does a church in a culture full of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons need? In part, we've seen the answer to that question all through the book of Titus. We've seen that the church needs leaders, pastors, teachers to rightly proclaim the word of Christ. That the church might be built up. We see that they're needed, that they might put away false teachers and false teaching among the people within the church. We see chapter 2, that they need discipleship, that we need older, mature men and women that might disciple Younger, perhaps less mature men and women. They need solid and certain knowledge of our salvation, of the grace that we've received and what that grace entails, that it saves and that it sanctifies. We need solid and certain knowledge of our hope. And we need all those things that it might lead to a life full of good works. There's this repeated emphasis from Paul to this church that's surrounded by a pagan culture to be committed to, to be ready for, to be devoted to good works because of what God has done, because of His work in your life. You see, the work of God in salvation is to lead believers to this active place of devotedness to good works, and that's what this young church needs to hear. Indeed, that's what every church needs to hear over and over and over again. We need to know our salvation know what it entails, but also know that it leads us into a life that's lived to honor and please God, a life devoted to good works. 
So God in his grace, he, he goes after, he obtains a people for his own possession, and that people start to take on his likeness and his qualities, and they start to do all these good works. Chapter 2 gave all these imperatives for, for how. How we're to do this. What's that to look like within the church? How are older men supposed to be? How are older women supposed to be? How are younger men and younger women? How are they supposed to behave and act within their families and within their relationships with one another? And all that through chapter 2 had kind of an eye toward outsiders, toward adorning the gospel so that others may look on it and see the beauty and glory of the gospel that they say they believe. But it was a little bit indirect toward outsiders. In chapter 3, I think Paul shifts a little bit in turning the focus a little bit more directly toward outsiders, unbelievers, the the culture surrounding them. He starts to give a flavor of what good works would look like in a society and in a culture where it's good works and acts are directed towards those people. And that's what he starts with in verse 1. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Remind them. In other words, this isn't something that Paul and Titus hadn't already talked about, hadn't already discussed. It was clearly part of their mission already from the beginning. But he says, something that they already know, they need to be hearing again. All need to hear things that they already know. It's implied there that there's some encouragement needed, some exhortation needed in this area and in these areas that he goes through in chapter chapter 3 specifically. I think it's specifically needed because of the setting that we have in Crete. Remember, this is a place that was full of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And out of that came a church and these people like cast aside this old lifestyle but I think it was probably hard to shake completely that uh, is said about Crete an early church historian said it's impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust and so this reminder of verse one is a needed reminder both for the people and the, knowing what their government is like like they have unjust policies and treacherous people that are ready to revolt and do their own thing at any possible moment. Paul knew when he was writing to Titus that the church that Titus was among and pastoring over and teaching was a bunch of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That that's where they came from. That that's what they're surrounded by. But he calls them to something different. He calls them to submit to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. I mean, evil beasts, liars, and lazy gluttons don't often make the best and most submissive citizens. But that's what Paul is calling the church to. To be different. To be characterized by something different than the pagan culture and society around them. To ha- handle their lives amongst unbelievers in a way that is different. Indeed, that is submissive, he says. See, submission is hard for anyone who has fallen, anyone who has a sin nature, which is everyone, but it's especially hard for submitting to rulers and authorities, especially in a pagan, unjust culture. And yet, this is what Paul calls them to. Now, Paul knew that the authorities that he's calling them to submit to are unjust, imperfect, and probably evil. And yet he still says, verse 1, Now, when he says verse 1, all of us in our minds are probably right now like, well, tell us all these exceptions to this rule, Paul. And we'd like that, wouldn't we? But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't list every possible exception because he's going for the general characteristic of your life is to say, here's what it should look like. Here's what it should be characterized by in general. Now, we know there are some exceptions to this, right? Peter gets beaten 
And they say, stop preaching the gospel. He says, I'll obey God rather than man. Thank you. And we should too. But in general, Paul is saying, you should be submissive. You may not like that. But this is what we are called to. He says the same thing in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And he gives a little bit more explanation and detail into that. He says, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Oh, so he, he puts it as like your submission to these authorities is in a sense, in a way, a submission to your God. And indeed, in submission to this word that he proclaims to the church here in Titus 3.1. Jesus, he gives us a great example and a great reply in Mark chapter 12. He's asked by some who are trying to trick him about paying taxes to Caesar. Keep in mind that Caesar is, he is the ruler of the Jewish people. He's not a great ruler. And Jesus' replies this. If you look in Mark chapter 12, verse 13, it says, And they sent him some from the Pharisees, the religious elite, and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So here's their question. Here's their trap. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? To submit to him in the ways that he has commanded. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, says to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's, Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled. And so should we. I think about the reply from Jesus here. He knows that he's talking about submitting to a regime that's going to put him to death. That makes the way for people to be crucified. He says, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. There's perfect balance with his replies. See, he shows his followers in this reply this, this way to be the best possible citizen. And that is to render to Caesar's what are Caesar's and to God's what is God's. To render to the governing authority submission as those who are under the authority of God, the ultimate authority. Now, one author said it this way, that on the one hand, the citizens of God's kingdom must endeavor to be the very best and most exemplary citizens of earthly kingdoms. Even power-hungry leaders like Caesar should feel the positive ripple effect of Christian love toward people and places. Yes. On the other hand, this is the balance in Jesus' saying, None but God is entitled to absolute, unfettered loyalty. God alone is king, and his kingdom is not of this world. And when God's kingdom and earthly kingdoms collide, and they will and do, render yourselves unto God and only to God. You can do that and in many ways be characterized by submission to authorities, to obeying them. The balance there is that we are to be exemplary citizens. Like the, the governing authorities ought to be able to look on us and say, like, there's what I would want and hope for in this culture and society. May that prevail even if they don't agree with us because they're seeing all these positive rippling effects coming out from the way we live our lives, the positive effects toward places and people around us. But they should also know that we think that God alone is king, that we render to God the things that are God's and we ultimately are to answer to him. And with God as the ultimate king, the, the people of God are then ready. 
They're ready for every good work. They're not hemmed in anymore by laws and authorities on this earth. We're freed by God to be the best possible citizens and to start doing good works and send rippling effects all over in every area of life. Because we're not just serving one another, although we are doing that. But all of a sudden, these people who have been changed by God as their king start serving everyone. They start loving everyone. They start submitting to, to those who are over them in a way that brings them life and not death. They, they start showing unbelieving neighbors and those around them love that is good and life-giving. You see an example of this of the early Christians. There was this emperor, not a specifically good emperor, his name was Julian, and he wrote about Christians in his day. He says atheism, and he's speaking of Christians there. Atheism... Christianity to this one God was considered atheism to them who served many gods. He says, Atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to stranger and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well. He's like, these Christians, they're taking care of all these things. And so as much as he wanted to stamp them out and hate them, he's like, he's seeing all these positive rippling effects of their lives. They're exemplary citizens. They're notable citizens in the way they're loving one another and loving even strangers and outsiders. See, what we need to do as believers is to be indispensable within our culture. That if you took us out, this life-giving effect would go along with it. We are to be these indispensable partners in the work for common good all around us. Ready for every good work. Believers are to be those that the world can look to as doing good and ready to do any and all good. And that's what Paul is calling the church to. Paul says, be ready. And then he starts to instruct, all right, here's some ways you can carry this out. Here's how you can relate to those outside of the church. He says, verse 2, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. In verse 2, he gives two negatives. Here's some things to not do. And two positives. Here's some things to do. It says, speak evil of no one. This is a constant temptation for believers. Because what has happened is, is that we start living differently. We have new desires. We have a new heart. And so now we start seeing things that we used to be like or things in the culture as morally sinful and evil. And what happens easily, temptation starts to sneak in. And so we start to feel morally superior. So that we can then look down on those around us in the culture and say, well, we clearly have it right now. It's easy to look down on unbelievers and the culture with a moral superiority and to even make it known. It's easy to do this in a way that, that we start demonizing our opponents, those who don't agree with us, and start making them look worse than they are. We can lie or we can exaggerate, which is, can be a form of a lie, We can go too far with how things are in another's life. We can gossip. We can slander. And Paul says, speak evil of no one. He calls for what James calls for in James chapter 3, 9. He says that those tongues that you are blessing the Lord with, they ought to not have both salt water and pure water coming out of them. How could you bless God and curse people who are made in God's image? That's not just the people that are in this room. Everybody is made in the image of God. And so we're to bless God and and bless those who are His image bearers. That's what James calls for. 
Those whose tongue praise God ought not to speak evil of his image bearers. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. In other words, Christians aren't to be those people that are constantly looking for a fight. They have an axe to grind, they have a chip on their shoulder, they have a fire that's just waiting for a spark, and then boom, it's ready to blow. That's not to be Christians. They're to avoid quarreling. They're not going to be the, the argumentative ones. They're going to be the ones that are working for peace in almost every situation they, because they know peace. They know peace himself. Charles Spurgeon said that fighting sheep are strange animals. That's not only among us, but outside as well. Fighting sheep need to be strange animals. There, there is much to argue, sure. And Paul isn't listing every possible exception. But he says, in general, your lives ought, to be, ought not to be argumentative. Not to be quarreling. You're going to be characterized by people of peace. And I think one summed up the challenge of our day well when he says, he says that it seems that our world only knows one way to respond to issues so as to treat them as significant. And you know this way well, I'm sure. Outrage. Here's the way that you can make an issue important is that you have and show some outrage. Nuance, empathy, and exchange are interpreted as weakness. And the only way we can convey the importance is by shouting over the crowd. And Christians, as they get pushed into the margins, start to fall into this trap and temptation of thinking that we need to convey the importance of our message by outrage. By if we're, if we're being silenced by the culture, here's what we'll do. We'll just shout louder than everybody else, and that will win the day. But I think Paul says that not ought to be amongst, uh, among Jesus' redeemed people. Avoid quarreling. Instead, verse 2 says to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Jonathan Edwards said that, that Christians ought to have a, a lamb-like and dove-like spirit and temper of Jesus. And I love that explanation. That, I think, sums up verse 2 well. This lamb-like, dove-like spirit and temper of Jesus. And that's what Paul calls for, the temper of Jesus, who doesn't show outrage and shout over. Paul uses the word courtesy here. This word is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness, that's the word courtesy used here, and gentleness of Jesus. It's a, it's a meekness, it's a, it's a gentleness, this courtesy, it's, it's a putting on of Jesus' character. That's what it is. Show Jesus' character to the world. Show perfect courtesy. That's what he's calling for. It has this idea of thoughtfulness of others and self-forgetfulness. That's courtesy. That's what he's calling for. And so he gives this positive command, be, be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Take on the character of Christ. Be gentle, dove-like, lamb-like, like Jesus. And so the two positive commands show the quality of being considerate of, of others. It shows that we're, we're looking to their needs. We're, we're thinking of them first. We're, we're not thinking of ourselves as too important. We have this lamb-like, dove-like spirit and temper towards all people. And, and what's hard about this is that we need to remember that when he says all people, that can be so generic that we forget that he's talking about real people. Like people in our lives, that's the temper we're to take with them, the people we know that are around us. It's important that when we're speaking in generalities, like do this to all people, that we put flesh and blood on those people. And we're to live out these verses with the governing authorities. 
with our families around us who are unbelievers. Speak evil of no one. Be gentle. Be courtesy. Have courtesy toward all with our, the people we work with, among our friends, in our neighborhoods, with our classmates. Think through some faces when you think about being courteous toward all people. Put some faces in your mind because that's what Paul is calling for. It's with real people and real situations that the difficulty of what he said in verses 1 and 2 really comes into play and is really seen. And so verses 1 and 2 give us seven commands as believers. Think through some faces of how we can obey those seven commands. But when we think about seven commands and how to act toward outsiders, it's important that we not divorce verses 1 and 2 with the rest of the passage. Because what Paul is going to do is what he's done before in the book of Titus, what he did in 11 through 14, is he is going to ground our doing in our salvation. And so why are believers to obey these seven commands from verses 1 and 2? Well, he tells us in verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating one another. Again, Paul is connecting, right? Here's what you need to be doing with your salvation. He's connecting, in other words, your sanctification, your ongoing process of living life in Christ, in this world, with your salvation that you have in Christ. And he speaks on what we, speaking to believers, once were. Or there, there ought to be a once were. Here's what you once were, but are no longer is the implication, Right? You have been transformed. That's what a Christian is. One who once was something and is now something else because of what Jesus has done. You were this, but now you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. What happened? Well, we'll skip down and say that in verse 5, Jesus saved. That's what happened. That's what brought about transformation. And the emphasis on verses 3 through 7 is on the work of God. It's on His work in salvation. So what happened between what we once were and what we now are is the work of God. His doing has brought about transformation. And what we once were is pretty serious. And heavily contrasts with what we're to be from verses 1 and 2. Right? If you look at verses 1 and 2, then be submissive. He says, you're not submissive, you're foolish. Be obedient. Well, we are disobedient. Be ready to do good. Well, we are slaves to evil. Speak evil of no one and be peaceable. Well, we are living in malice and envy. Be gentle and courteous. He says, well, you are hating one another and being hated. All right, it's what the stark contrast between what we're to be and what we once were. See, we once were all of those things that he's calling us out of in verses 1 and 2. And so knowing what we were is going to help fuel obedience to verses 1 and 2. And you want to be more gentle and more courteous toward all people? Know who you were. Because then you can know that you're you're on no better playing field than anyone else. You have no moral superiority toward anyone. Knowing who we were fuels obedience, fuels us being more gentle, more courteous, more loving towards others. It's hard to be severe toward the sin of others if we're going to say we want to be severe on sin. We ought to start with ourselves. And if we're severe with ourselves, we start to have all this kind of compassion and gentleness when we approach the sin of others. Believers, if we're to obey the seven commands of verses 1 and 2, we're going to have to remember what we were. 
hopefully what we once were and are no longer and are coming out of, but the reality of what we were is worse than I think we think. And it should humble us more than it does. So that when we start thinking about this culture that's full of of pagan living, Cretes, or our culture that is full of, of this moral confusion, we don't get this air and sense of moral superiority toward outsiders. Because we know what we once were. No better. No different. The reality of what we were is worse than we think and should humble us more than it does. And when we look to unbelievers, we could say every single time, but for the grace of God, so goeth I. But verse 3 needs to be read along with verses 4 through 7. Paul connecting all these pieces together of what you're to be, who you were, and now who you are. Verses 4 through 7 is one sentence. He says, we once were, but that's not the case anymore. He gives this great change in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, He saved us. Verse 3 speaks of all of us as this broken wreck. Foolish, disobedient. And what verse 4 should say, as we said last week, is not that His goodness and loving kindness appeared. What verse 4 should say is when the wrath of God appeared, here's how He exacted His judgment on sinners, fools, disobedient people, speaking evil of others, hating others, being hated by others. should say His wrath appeared and it brought judgment on all these people, but it doesn't. He says, but when his goodness and loving kindness appeared. The goodness and loving kindness appeared to foolish, disobedient, sinful, rebellious people like us. It appeared ultimately in the person of Jesus who took on flesh, who lived a life where he was despised, bearing shame, died a death that he didn't deserve to die because he had lived the perfect life. He died the death that sinners deserve to die. Foolish people deserve to die. Enemies of God deserve to die. He died that death in the place of sinners, that he might take their punishment upon himself, that they might be set free. We know that people who trust in Jesus can be set free because after he took that punishment for their sin, he gets put in a tomb and he doesn't stay there long. He rose for sinners. And so when we look to verse 4, after knowing what we once were in verse 3, that the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared in Jesus should amaze us. The kindness and loving, the goodness and loving kindness of Jesus appeared. And every single person that it appeared to were all undeserving and did not earn a bit of it. And Jesus didn't need anything. Right? He didn't come because he's like, I need more love. I need some companionship. I'm bored in heaven. That is not any of his reasons for appearing in kindness and lovingness toward us. His goodness was, and loving kindness that appeared was just this overflow of who God is. He 
didn't see something in us and say, well, that's what I want to go after. He just is who he is, and he is this good and loving God. And the overflow of that is that he came after us in loving pursuit. The Son lovingly seeks and saves the lost to redeem a people for his own possession because he just desires, out of his goodness, out of his love, a people that would know him and love him and live for his glory. And here's what we know, that all those who look to Jesus in faith are saved because looking to him is looking to the appearance of goodness and loving kindness. That is his appearing. To really know Jesus is to be rescued by those things. To be rescued by his goodness. To be rescued by his loving kindness. And so the question for all of us is, before we move forward, is do you know Jesus? Do you know his goodness? You know his loving kindness. If you look to him and you see something other than that, and I would say that you don't really know him, not in a saving way, and that you need to turn from your sins and trust in this one who came after you that you might be redeemed. Put your faith in him. But if you do know him, let's make sure that verse 4 isn't a dull verse for us. But when should say we got the judgment that we deserve, but it says that what appeared? Goodness and loving kindness. Let's not let our once foolish ears grow dull of hearing how Jesus came to the rescue for foolish rebels like us. Remembering who we were helps us look back to God's saving work in continual awe and it will fuel the work that we need to do right here and right now. We need to look back out that window that shows us Calvary and let it fuel our obedience even now. Because we were slaves to various passions, but Jesus paid the penalty of our slavery to sin. And Jesus broke the power of that slavery so that now we're free to obey and love God as we were made to. He dismantled sin's power so that we can be slaves of righteousness, free to obey, wholly belonging unto God, so that we might do good works that he has prepared for us, all because of what he has done. Let verse 4 never grow dull in our ears. So Paul explains the appearing of Jesus because it's vital for the church to know that if they're going to be ready for every good work. If they're going to, verse 8, be devoted to good works, they need to know this appearance of Jesus and what it was like. He saved us. And that verb, he saved us, is the main verb of that one sentence in verses 4 through 7. The focus is not on us and our doing, it's on God and his doing and his work. And so Paul's calling us, be zealous for good works, be devoted, be ready for good works because love appeared, because goodness appeared, because Jesus came. And so he's, he's grounding every single one of the things that he's commanding, all these imperatives, he's grounding them in our salvation. He, he's making sure that all of us know that good works are the result of God's appearing in your life. That there should be that result. That if God has ultimately, he's really appeared in your life, if you've really experienced grace, then it won't leave you with just being saved. It will transform you. It will lead you into life living good works before the Father. It always does that. But he knows, he wants us to make sure that good works are the result. They're not actually what saves. And so he goes on to explain this in verses 5 through 7. By explaining why we were saved, or according to what we were saved, how we were saved, and to what end. And so the, the why, verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own 
mercy. Right, the, the song Rock of Ages has it right, and it says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite known, could my tears forever flow? Those all sound like really good things. And he says, all for sin cannot atone, and he's right. We were not saved by those things. We cannot be saved by the labors of our hands, our zeal for good works, the tears that flow. They cannot atone for sin. They will not save us. God doesn't save because we've done something. He doesn't actually save us because we're lovable or he sees some sort of potential in us or they thinks, well, like, I think they've done enough now that I can come and take over. He's not impressed by our works. Why does God save? Verse 5, his mercy. God saves because he is merciful. He loves us because he is loving. He saves us because he is merciful. Right? That's the overflow of his character and nature. He doesn't find us lovable necessarily or something in us to love. He is loving and so he loves us. He is merciful and so he shows his mercy to us in saving us. Martin Luther said this way, that the love of God does not first discover but creates what is pleasing to it. He doesn't discover something about us that says, well, you know what, now I think I'm going to be moved toward mercy toward them. He is moving toward mercy toward us because that's who he is. And then he starts creating these things in us that we might be a praise unto his glory. And so what the saving mercy of God does is it puts us all on the same level, doesn't it? You didn't deserve it. No one else deserved it. The only reason that we would have any sort of salvation is because God is merciful. He doesn't look to Paul and say, you know what? He seems like he could be, he has great potential. He could be a really good apostle to the Gentiles. So maybe let's work on Paul for a little bit. I'll just appear to him in Damascus, on that road to Damascus, and show him mercy because, dang, Paul could be a tool in my hand. I could use him greatly for the sake of my cause on this earth. He doesn't do that. He, he, he looks, and as this one who is infinitely merciful... He shows mercy and he saves because that's who he is. Church, God isn't waiting for us to be good enough as if we could. God, guys, he isn't waiting for us to be lovable. He, He isn't waiting around for us to perform enough. When he saves, it's by his infinite mercy alone or not at all. We contribute nothing to this except sin. That's salvation. We contribute the sin. God contributes everything else. He does what's necessary. Verse 7 says that we're justified by his grace. Grace and like, like mercy, by definition, they are, very, they are unearned, undeserved. They can never be demanded by rebels, by sinners. We can't look to God and say, well, why haven't you shown mercy I demand that you show me mercy. Well, what we're demanding before God is justice. And I think we need to be careful with demanding that before God as sinners. They can't be earned. They can't be deserved. They cannot be demanded. God is merciful, though. He looks and he loves and he shows his mercy. And so there is no question who gets credit in salvation. If we contributed some work to it, then we might be like, well, maybe I need to praise myself a little bit, but God a little bit too. 
But if we're saved by mercy alone, then all the credit, all the honor, all the glory goes to God alone. So that we have no question in our minds, who should we be singing to on Sunday? Should we be sounding the alarm for how great we've done this week? No, we should be saying, you know what? Jesus paid it all. He alone gets the credit. Not myself, not my works, God. And when he saves, it's by his mercy. As we sang, tis mercy all immense and free. And oh my God, it found out me. That is an expression of humility. Like, I should not have had this. I was in the dungeon locked away, but suddenly this flame of light came and I was set free. And I just walked out and started following God. Oh my God, it found out me. God saves according to his own mercy or not at all. Our relationship then with God is based upon not what we have done or can do. It's based upon his mercy. And oh how needed this is. Knowing that we're saved by his mercy, knowing that our relationship is based on his mercy, is needed for salvation, but it's also needed for ongoing life. It's needed for our sanctification. Right, just this very morning, I woke up just feeling cold toward the Lord and feeling that that was reciprocated. You ever been there? This morning. Feeling sense of shame, guilt, I haven't done enough. I haven't relied on God enough this week. I haven't prayed enough. This sermon's not good enough. Do you ever have these thoughts? You ever been there? That's thinking of a spiritual state, a spiritual relationship with God based upon performance, works, something that I contribute. And it's a basing of spiritual relationship on God in a way that the enemy loves. Like, this is the point of warfare, brothers and sisters. When you wake up thinking that I need to earn God's favor, that I haven't done enough, that I couldn't have a relationship toward God because of the way this week went, that he's cold toward me and I'm cold toward him and I, I don't know how to get out of this. Have you ever been there? And so how do we fight that, brothers and sisters? One author said that when we feel ourselves cold in affection and duty, we've been there. The best way is to warm ourselves at this fire of his love and mercy in giving himself for us. This morning, as I thought through Titus 3, 5, it took me a long time to get there. All these things run through my head. Instead, I should have been running to saying that God saved me by his mercy. But God got me there finally, and yes, there it is. I can warn myself by the mercy of God that my relationship with God was never based on how good I've done or being enough for God. The standing that we have before God is always and only based upon His mercy toward us. That matters not just for salvation. That matters for me this morning, for you tomorrow morning, and every other day past that, that you can come to the Lord and you can know that even if you haven't done enough, that you've never done enough, and that has never been the basis of your relationship anyway. Praise be to God. Our spiritual state and relationship with God exists and is based on God's mercy, not our performance, not anything that we contribute to it. And so when we're in those places, like I was this morning, we have to know the infinite mercy of God. And we have to run to it. Maybe put Titus 3, 5 down to run to often. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And we have to cast ourselves under this ever-flowing stream of mercy that we know flows. 
Right, we've seen it in Hebrews, right? In Hebrews chapter 4, we're told, draw, to the, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive what? That we may receive it now, every day, mercy, and find grace to help us in our time of need. Our time of need is any time that we think that our relationship with God is based on something other than his mercy. That's the battle. And he says, come, come on. Draw near. I'm going to pour out grace and mercy for your time of need. God is faithful. He will do it. We have a relationship with God according to his mercy. And that leads us to the how. How did he save us? Paul lists this in verse 5 and 6. Saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. There's this by, or we could say through, could be translated either way. He does it through this. And what does he say? Through regeneration and through renewal. They are both dependent upon that one by or through word. And so I think that that helps us clue in that this preposition is is kind of dictating both, that this regeneration and renewal are two aspects of one thing, one event. So regeneration, it's this word that has in it, again, and genesis. Sound familiar to you? First book of the Bible is the book of Genesis. It means beginning. The the word here is begin again, (laughs) put together, begin again. It's a rebirth. It's a new beginning. It's a being made new. It's, it's 2 Corinthians 5.17 that you once were this, but now you're a new creature. That's what regeneration is. You're something new. You're beginning again. Then he says, and by this renewal. We saw that in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, by the renewal of your minds. I think the idea there is this idea of putting off the old and putting on the new. That's renewal. It's having these desires and affections change. And how are they changed? By their, they're changed by this new affection. I'm renewed because all of a sudden my heart loves the Lord now. I I see Him as more desirable and better than all these other things that I used to desire. I used to be a slave to various passions, but now I don't see those as attractive anymore. Not as attractive as God. And so what the Holy Spirit does here is simultaneously gives new life and cleanses the heart. I think that's what's going on here. You've been made new and you've been given new desires, new affections, because you found this greater affection in Christ. I think this is as promised, and we see this promise in Ezekiel chapter 36 that I think is clearly alluded to in this passage. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25, God says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water. There's some washing. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There's the regeneration and renewal promised. He says in Titus, this is what's happened to you believers. What God has promised is being fulfilled in your very lives that you, by the spirit, have been regenerated, been made new, and been renewed given these new affections. This word for regeneration is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. 
And in here, when he speaks of this new world, that's the same word, begin again. What Jesus is referencing is a new creation. And so what this regeneration and renewal that Titus is talking about, that Paul is telling Titus about in Titus 3, is pointing to a new creation. It's in a sense saying that that now, if you've been saved, you're a creature of the new creation. You've been born to a new order that's going to take place, that is going to happen one day. And indeed, that is the end for which we are saved. So we've looked at the the why and and, and the how, and now to what end? The what end is verse 7. So that being justified by His grace, again, your standing, your, your right standing before God is based upon Him being gracious. Him giving you something. You're justified by grace so that we might become heirs according to hope of eternal life. Here's the ultimate goal, that brothers and sisters, we would be heirs of eternal life. That we would receive the inheritance. This is the hope of all who are regenerated, and it is a solid hope because as creatures of the new creation, the illusion that we're given there, that we're creatures of this new creation, there's one who's gone ahead of us. Jesus is the firstborn of this new creation. He died and rose again. And so our hope for eternal life is as secure as Jesus is risen. It's solid. We will be heirs along with him. And we know that he has been raised and is sitting, reigning and ruling over all. And he says, your inheritance is his inheritance. You're going to be co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ Jesus. And so the inheritance of eternal life is secure or as secure as Jesus is risen. You've been saved that you might become heirs. That is our hope. And so what's Paul done again here is he's taken us to look out both windows again, hasn't he? We just looked out the window of Calvary and we saw that we were saved. By the mercy of God, we've been saved. And now we just started looking out the other window, the window of this, this sunrise that's to come, this hope of glory, this inheritance that is to come, this hope of eternal life. And what Paul wants to do is to make sure that the church looks out those windows all the time. Not so that they could do nothing now, but so that they could be busy now. Paul makes sure that the church gazes out both windows again and again, and he wants them to gaze out and notice some details out each window. Oh, notice that when you were saved, it was by mercy. Oh, notice that your hope of eternal life is, is this hope of this new creation that's to come. He's pointing out these details, and the gazing matters and the details matter because of our living right now. Verse 8, he says this, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Right, details out each window, gazing out each window, make us, lead us to this careful devotion of good works right now. He says, stress these things or insist on these things, that the gospel by salvation, the gospel of salvation by the mercy of God, that justification by grace needs to be insisted upon. I mean, that doesn't sound like the rallying cry. If you want people to be devoted to good works, why don't you insist that they are saved, that they are God's own possession by his work alone. That doesn't sound like what you would do if you're going to stir up good works. But Paul says, here's what you need to look on over and over again. It's by grace that you've been justified. It's by sal- your salvation is by the mercy of God alone, so that you could devote yourself to good works right now. In other words, those good works are always flowing out of that mercy and that grace that we've received in salvation. He expects that devotion to doing good flows from what God has done for us. 
not the other way around. He says that your works, your good works, flow from your salvation. Your good works aren't toward salvation, that'll flow from your salvation. And so over and over again, we get this clear explanation. We've seen it almost two weeks in a row. In in chapter 2, the very end, chapter 3, the beginning, it's almost parallel passages. And he's giving us clear explanations of what the gospel, so that we might be devoted to good works, ready to do every good work. Salvation through Jesus and his work flows right into good works in our, our lives, right? Christian action, right? Christian behavior is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Living comes from hearing and believing the gospel. And that means, church, that no church, no Christian can ever leave the gospel behind. The Christian or the church that wants to leave the gospel behind is the one that needs the gospel the most. We need this over and over and over again, and it has everything to do with every single day of life. Knowing the gospel. You want to live right? You want to do good works? You want to be devoted to them? You want to be ready for them? You need to to know the gospel. The gospel repeatedly preached, repeatedly heard, is the formula needed for every church, every Christian of all time. And it supports good works, good living. It's excellent, he says, and profitable for all. So what does a young church need in a pagan Crete? They need to be devoted to good works. There's a lot of work to be done on that island. A lot of evil beasts, lazy gluttons and liars walking around. We're going to need the church to be about good works. Go do some good out there. Are we any different? The church in a culture that doesn't trust and love the Lord, the church has to be called again and afresh and anew to a devotion to do good towards all. To be about good works, to be devoted to them. And these good works should be pervasive and pervading every area of our lives and in our culture. Everywhere we are, there should be good. Good works ought to be flowing everywhere that we go, affecting every area of our lives, every area of life in our culture and in our world. But the way to call one another to this is not first and foremost to call one another to social action. It's first and foremost to call one another to the gospel to believing that Jesus has saved us by his grace. It's to encourage and ground our works in what God has done. It's by repeatedly holding up the gospel to one another, reminding each other, here's what we once were. But the loving kindness and goodness of God appeared, and he saved us. Oh, church, let's never leave that behind. Would you bow in prayer with me? God, I think um, most people's hearts are like mine today, um, at the same time full of joy and full of sorrow um, as we see your commands and examine our cold hearts toward other people and our cold hearts toward you. And so we want to slow down and take a moment before we leave to just reflect on, first of all, who we were. Some of us have been Christians for a long time, 
I've been your son for 20 years, and sometimes I forget what it was like to be in the dark and to be without hope and to be chasing after every pitiful pleasure that this world can offer and hold up as a God, and it's empty. There is no purpose. And God, I am so thankful that you regenerated me, that you gave me a new heart, that you put your Holy Spirit within me, and that you started to change me. And God, we want to rejoice in that today. May every Christian here exult in your great love that you poured out on us, not because of anything that we did, but just because you are good and loving, and that's who you are. God, thank you so much for making us your sons and daughters. We did not make a good decision. You gave us new hearts. Thank you so much, God. Help us to never forget that. And God, the evidence that we do forget that is in how hatefully we can look other people who do not know you. We treat them like we have accomplished something by being a Christian. We forget who we are. We forget how blind we were. We forget how purposeless it all was. Will you give us compassion instead of judgment and arrogance and condescension, Lord? Let our hearts ache for those who don't know you, even if they are, and especially if they are hateful toward us, if they say hateful things about you and your people and your word. God, will you help us to walk in the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us to do? Put faces in our minds, like Dylan said. Where do we need to be? better citizens of Enid, Oklahoma? Who do we need to show love to instead of slandering and rolling our eyes and wishing they'd go away? God, who needs to see what Christianity really looks like by our love for them and our compassion for them and what shows them better than loving people who hate us? <laughs> Loving our enemies, that's exactly what you did. God, fill our hearts with love for those who are hard to love and let us be obedient and walk in these works, walk in all these ways that you've commanded us, God. Give us gentleness, give us kindness, give us patience, Lord. Give us a deep love for those who don't know you, Lord. And if there are people here today uh, in this very room there probably are some who don't have a new heart and who maybe woke up today and they don't know what the point is, but they want to know, and they want to know what to do with their guilt and their shame and their aimlessness. Or maybe they don't think there's anything wrong with them and they need to see your holiness, God. They don't understand that they deserve your wrath instead of all these good blessings that we're talking about. God, will you... Help them to see, give them eyes to see, give them ears to hear the gospel, the good news that there is not one thing that we can do to be saved. There's not one thing that we can contribute to our salvation except our sin, God. 
grant them repentance, give them faith, and let them fall to their knees and cry out to be saved by you. Because if they do, you'll save them. If they do, that's evidence that you've already given them a new heart. God, will you save people in this room today? Make them your sons and daughters. Let them experience the joy of knowing the God of the universe. Let them experience the love that comes from the most pure and holy love in the universe, your heart, God. Save people today. Use your saints to do the work that you've called them to do in this world. In your holy name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.